Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord, you're good to us today. We magnify your name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Brother Trevino. And once again, it is good to be here today. I have been enjoying already this men's retreat. Uh, I want to thank Brother Paget again. I don't see him in here, but I want to thank him for the invitation and for all the kindnesses shown to us already in the last day or so. Uh, gracious hospitality and the courtesies, and I appreciate that so much. And it's especially good to be in the company of all you fine brethren and a number of our friends here today. And with friends like these, I don't need any enemies, I'll tell you that right now. <clears throat> but uh, You should see my enemies. My, my friends play rough, you should see my enemies. But I need to move right on here today, but I want to express, first of all, also how much I appreciate the message Brother Rowley preached for the encouragement and the inspiration that it has been to us today, and I know that we will draw from that for a long time to come. And it is evident that much of what Brother Rowley had to say was born out of personal experience and that's where our better messages are born and that we feel most passionately about and so I appreciate him sharing with us uh, the inspiring Word of God today and uh, you know I didn't come here to this meeting to try to impress anybody and I guess the sermon last night certainly illustrates that. But, um, uh, but I've come to impart what is closest to my mind and to my heart these days. And so if you will turn with me in the book of Second Samuel chapter 12, I'm going to have to hurry on. My time is very limited. Um, and I know what's going to happen at 1230. Or if I go past 1230, there's going to be a revolt. And <clears throat> all of your, your courtesy and Holy Ghost experience is going to be put to the test at that point. And so I'm going to uh, have to streamline this quite a bit today, but that's all right. 2 Samuel 12, beginning with verse 1, a familiar setting. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him, and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man hath exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. There came a traveler unto the rich man 
And he spared the take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he, had, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thou art the man. And I simply want to talk to you for a little while this afternoon or this morning about uh, when preaching becomes personal. When preaching becomes personal. And I want you to pray right now again. The Lord would help us and help me. I'm not feeling very well today and had a very rough night. But if the Lord will help us, maybe we can be a blessing. Would you pray? Lord Jesus, we come to you today. We look to you for your help, your assistance, your anointing. Without you, we can do nothing. We entreat you today, O oh God, would you open our minds and our hearts to receive your word. Let your perfect will be done. We'll praise and thank you for it today. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God, praise God. Amen. The Lord bless you. You may be seated. You know, much of the time, the Word of God is given to a large audience. Uh, as we read the, the Bible, a lot of times the Word was sent to an entire nation or a group of people. Or you could just say for general consumption. But occasionally, occasionally, <clears throat> the Word of God is very specific. And it may become very narrow in its focus and in its purpose. And sometimes it is given specifically for one individual. There are times when we as preachers step to the pulpit that we have a message to preach that is for everyone's benefit everybody is going to receive something from the message and uh, it's just something to help everybody along or maybe some instruction that can help everyone present but there are times that we step to the pulpit and the message that we are going to preach has somebody's name on it. Uh, and it is very specific. You're there, you're trying to reach for a certain individual. Not that everyone present cannot receive something from it, but its main focus sometimes is for one person. And sometimes people are not very happy to learn that. Uh, you know, they want men to preach in generalities so that they can just kind of, you know, where the spotlight isn't so much on them. But that's not the way it works sometimes. 
And I'm going to tell you today, before I go any farther, that the day will come if it hasn't already, when the man of God is going to be preaching to you. And you are going to know it. And everybody around you is going to know it. And that is going to become the greatest challenge of your walk with God up to that point. Is what happens when the preacher lays his finger at the end of your nose and says, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. You can look all the way through Scripture, and I have a lot of verses written here that I don't have time to cover, but you can go all the way back to the garden. Obviously, there was just one man there. So the first message that God had was for one man. And the message was, you can eat of any tree in this garden. But there is a tree over here, and you will not eat of that tree. It was given to one man. It was very specific. It was very direct. Don't eat of that tree. And of course, they violated that commandment. Eve was made and she was deceived. The Bible said Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. And she ate of the fruit and she gave it to Adam. They both ate it. God comes on the scene And uh, when uh, they are found out, then God has another very specific message for each one of them. A specific message for the serpent, a specific message for the woman, and a specific message for the man. I'm going to tell you something. God often is good enough to us to give us a very specific message before the danger comes. But if we will not be warned by that message, there is another kind of specific message that will come our way. They didn't receive the first one, but they certainly couldn't avoid the second one. And the pattern is repeated again in the third or the fourth chapter of Genesis. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. And we don't know how old they were when this happened. It just simply says, in the process of time, that Cain brought of the fruit of the field. And he offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And Abel brought a lamb. And offered the lamb as a sacrifice. It seems evident that Abel was a shepherd, a keeper of sheep. And Cain, no doubt, was a tiller of the ground. That was his specialty. And so it seemed very logical in his mind. If you're going to bring a sacrifice to the Lord, to bring the best of what you have produced. Sounds reasonable. Sounds logical. Amen. That kind of thinking sounds uh, sensible enough. But 
But evidently, somewhere along the way, and there's a lot about those early days that the Bible doesn't take time to detail for us. But I'm sure that it was already a, a matter of protocol and proper procedure to offer up a lamb as a sacrifice. And I think it goes back to when Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. A man's covering is never enough. And so the Lord slew an animal and blood was shed and, and a principle was established at that point that only blood can really cover for sin. And so we don't have uh, evidence here that God specifically told them to offer a lamb, but it seems evident that this was the proper way to do it because of the way God responded to this. And, uh, and so God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's. And it made Cain very angry. He had done the best he could. He worked the ground. He brought the best of the fruit that he had and offered it up to the Lord. That seemed logical. Amen. And I want you to remember that point because there are times when we all can allow our own reasoning to get involved and we can think that what we are doing is sensible and is proper under the circumstances even if it is not altogether the normal procedure. But God is not interested in what we think. And so he simply rejected Cain's sacrifice. Cain was very angry and God came and spoke to him. A very specific message. He said, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? He said, if you do well, shalt thou also not be accepted. But if you don't do well, then sin lieth at the door. That should have been enough. Because the Lord went on to say, He said, I will, His desire will be to you. And you will lead Him. He gave Him a promise that if He would just do well, He would be superior in some ways to His brother, being the eldest. Praise the Lord. But Cain began to brood on that. A lot of times people receive a message in a church service and it looks like they received it okay until they go away and they begin to brood on it. And the more they think about it, the more upset they get. Praise the Lord. And finally, there came the time when he argued with his brother and strove with him and he slew him in the field. And then here comes God with another specific message. Cain, where is your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And <clears throat> I don't have time to, to, to deal with all that, but there is, there is a pattern there that is repeated over and over and over again.
in our churches. And that flippant attitude, not one of humility and surrender and repentance. I did wrong. I didn't do right. Please forgive me. I don't know what possessed me to do that. I don't know what caused me to act that way. But instead, am I my brother's keeper? What are you talking to me for? And God said, but doesn't his blood cry to me from the ground? And so then he declared that he would become a fugitive and a vagabond. And that the ground would not yield to him its strength. And he would have that kind of difficulty all of his days. And that he would be an outcast and a reject. The Lord put him out of his church. It was a very direct and abrupt message. Cain went away from there saying, My punishment is greater than I can bear. But you see, he could have listened the first time when the message was specific to him. And God entreated him and along with the entreaty made him a promise. Amen. But he didn't. And so the next time that God spoke to him specifically, it didn't go very well. In the 15th chapter First Samuel you have where God instructed uh, the king Saul through Samuel to go and to utterly destroy the Amalekites. God had a controversy with Amalek. And he had a grudge to settle with Amalek. And this is now the time when all of that is going to come to a head. And so he sends and dispatches Saul on this mission to utterly destroy them. And it seems so brutal, the instructions that's given to them. Kill everything. Everything that breathes. Amen. Humans, men, women, the elderly, the children, the suckling babe, and even every animal that breathes around there. I want to utterly wipe out the remembrance of Amalek. Praise God. And Saul goes, you know the story. He does almost all of what God told him to do. It was a great victory. It was a great slaughter. They went through the, the, the city and they wiped everything out. They took little innocent babies and ran them through with a sword. But they saved just one man. Now history then later records that there was obviously more than one spared. But, but he saved the king and he saved just enough of, of the sheep and the oxen. Not for his own benefit, but his reasoning got involved. I'd like to have a big victory celebration when I get back home. I want everybody to see what I have accomplished. So I want to parade this king down the middle of our streets so that the people can see the evidence that we have conquered them. And the sheep and the oxen 
are not for my own consumption. We're going to offer them up as a sacrifice to the Lord. But God wasn't impressed with his reasoning. And on the way he sends Samuel to him, go meet Saul. He has not done. Now understand this. He did almost everything that God told him to do. But God's verdict was he has not done what I told him to do. He has not obeyed my word. He didn't even give him credit for what he had done. The verdict was he hasn't obeyed me. Praise the Lord. And so you know the story. Samuel meets Saul. Have you done what the Lord told you? Oh yes, we did it all. Well, well, what is the sound of the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? Oh, that. I'm glad you asked. You see, we just brought them because we're going to offer them up as a sacrifice. And that's when Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight. In burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken than the fat of rams. I don't care how high you jump when you come to church. I don't care how many laps you run. Don't care how loud you holler. You might be the loudest amen while the preacher is preaching. But if you're not doing what God told you to do, your sacrifice doesn't mean anything to him. And he said, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So... Vehemently does God feel about rebellion and disobedience. In Jeremiah chapter 36, you don't have to turn there, but there's another incident where, and you know, this is at the tail end of a long string of, of times when God had sent prophets and men to speak to, to his people and to the kings and those in charge. And... and Year after year and generation after generation, the situation was just getting worse and worse and worse. So here is Jeremiah. Amen. And, and it is his lot to preach to people who will not listen to him. It was foreordained that it would be that way. He is called the weeping prophet. Because so much of his preaching was in the form of a lament for people that would not hearken and would not receive. Let me just tell you something today. Amen. Your preacher reflects how God is feeling. I had somebody tell me one time, said I come to church and I'm tired and I've been working all day and then I come in and I can take one look at the expression on your face and know that we are about to get preached at and he said it makes me want to turn around and go home 
That kind of person never will be saved. Praise the Lord. I wish our preacher would be more inspirational. Or this or that. But the preacher reflects how God is feeling. Jeremiah was a weeping prophet because that's the way God was feeling. And the wound had become incurable. And the disease to a point where there was no way to, uh, to remedy this situation. And yet the Lord instructs Jeremiah concerning certain, concerning certain things. And they write it down in a scroll. And through a process it is brought to the attention of the king. This is their last chance to hear the word of the Lord. Their absolute last chance. And the king finally sends for the roll and Jehoiada reads it to him. And in the presence of the others that were there. And while he was reading it, the king got angry. He snatched the roll out of the hand of Jehoiada. He cut it up with the knife and threw it into the fire. And dusted his hands off. There, that takes care of that. Some people think that just because they won't listen, that it changes God's mind. Or if they stay home, that they're not responsible for the message that is preached. I'm going to tell you something. There have been times when I have gone to church to preach to a certain individual, and they were not there. And I preached it anyway. And that message is going to stand against them in the judgment because they should have been there to receive it did Jehoiakim's cutting the roll up and throwing it in the fire change what God said not at all in fact the judgment was pronounced that now it was all over and God instructed Jeremiah to take another roll and write the same words that were on the first one and then there were many other words added to that one. And along with it, it was declared that Jehoiakim would not have a descendant to sit on the throne of David. And that he would be killed and his body would be thrown out to the sun uh, during the day and the frost by night. And it was during his reign that Nebuchadnezzar came and reduced the city of Jerusalem to rubble and destroyed the temple and so on. Because he would not listen. Amen. I read another incident where uh, there was Belshazzar and he was having a great time and was feeling so good that he sent for the vessels of the temple and they brought them and they were drinking their wine and, and having their party utilizing the instruments of the temple when suddenly a hand appears with a very, very specific message. And I don't have time to elaborate on all that. I'm just simply showing you instances. And the Bible is full of them. Where God spoke to one individual. To one individual. Praise the Lord. And so here in our text you have Nathan coming to David. David has committed a great sin. He has uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then had her husband killed, murdered, in order to cover up the consequences of it when it was found that Bathsheba was with child. And so he tidied up all the loose ends and makes her his wife 
And as far as anybody knows, the baby she's carrying, amen, is his uh, rightfully and so on. And everything is neat and taken care of until a preacher comes walking in one day. And he begins to relate a story about the poor little man who only had one little ewe lamb. And beside him was this very rich man who had great flocks. But when a traveler, a stranger came to him one day to entertain him, to feed him, instead of taking from his flocks, he took the one little ewe lamb that had laid in the man's bosom and offered it up to him. You know what? God knew what was in the heart of David. And David reacted to this story in an appropriate manner. The Bible speaks about the sure mercies of David. David had genuinely a very strong inner core of values and principle. And I want to point out that it is possible for you to violate your core values. I do not assume every time that somebody does wrong or messes up that it was because they never believed it in the first place. It is possible for you to have a very strong set of convictions and a very sound core value. And still go against it. Psychology has a term, and, and I know that uh, you may have a little fun at my expense with this, but, but psychology has a term, it's called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance means whenever somebody acts contrary to their core beliefs. Some people don't have any core beliefs. I don't think Bill Clinton was acting contrary to his core beliefs. He has exhibited in his life a pattern. And an ability to constantly change his position. Praise the Lord. No core values at all. And so what he did cannot be considered cognitive dissonance because it was the, the consequence of somebody who has no convictions, who has no real belief system. But there are times when people have core beliefs and they act opposite to that. In such cases, it becomes a very traumatic thing. It's very hard for a person like that to go on living. Because they are tormented and afflicted constantly. By the shame and the inner reproach that they feel because of their deed. I read a book. It's an old classic from many years ago. I had known about it for a long time, but I just never had a chance to read it. It's called Crime and Punishment. And it's a story about a young man in Russia who uh, 
Uh, he is an author himself, and he writes, and he began to wonder what it was like to take a human life. And how horrible a person would feel under those circumstances. And he happened to know an old lady there in that community who was a pawnbroker. And she lived off of the misery of everybody else. And she would take their treasures and give them nothing hardly in return. And she added to the misery and the heartache of the people around her. And that's what she thrived on. And so he came to the conclusion that if anybody deserved to die, that she did. And that nobody would grieve over her. And he was right. Nobody would grieve over her. And so he went and at a particular opportunity there, he killed her. And time went on and nobody knew who had done it. Nobody had seen him there. There was no evidence to link him to it. But his own conscience began to accuse him. And he began to see accusing looks in everybody's faces around him. Every conversation, he began to hear things in the conversation that seemed to be uh, betraying the fact that they knew something. And it began to torment him and afflict him. So that even when the police had nothing to connect him to it. And I don't know how this really fits in with this story. But I'm just saying this is a young man who was not a murderer prior to this. He acted against his natural uh, beliefs and his core values. And now he was being tormented by it. Praise the Lord. And his conscience was accusing him until, uh, to make a long story short, and I'll probably ruin the book for you if you ever decide to read it, but he, he can't stand himself anymore. His dreams are tormented. He sees uh, accusation and conviction in everybody around him. And so he finally goes and turns himself in, though they had nothing, nothing on him at all. And so the crime and the punishment, the punishment came not from society, that came later. The punishment came from within. And you have to wonder how David was feeling even before Nathan came into the room. You have to wonder if he was really rejoicing about what had happened. And how he was going to be able to live with himself knowing what he had done. I'm going to tell you, sometimes the exposure that comes about through the preaching of the Word of God is the best thing that can happen to us. I really believe that David would have self-destructed. Because I can't see David going on with life and not having this eat away at him a little at a time. Don't think that because the preacher preaches something that nails you, that he is your enemy. It is an act of mercy and kindness. And so David reacted rightly to the story. 
I don't think he just put on for Nathan's benefit. I don't think it was, it was a, a pretentiousness here. But he was genuinely angry. And he was filled with righteous indignation when he said, The man that has done this shall surely die. And you know, the truth of the matter is that it is often easy for us to make a correct judgment when it concerns somebody else. And the point I'm trying to make is that you can sit in a church house and hear preaching and holler amen rightly. When somebody else is getting preached at. And go away from there and say, man, I don't know what's wrong with so and so. The word of God was obviously for them and they didn't go to the altar. And what, what are they thinking? And, and uh, you know, how can they do that? And it's a right reaction. Until it happens to you. I've had people very recently who for years have been some of my loudest supporters. Amen. For several years I preached looking only at them. Because their responsiveness to the word of God encouraged me. And their amens inspired me. And they were always quick to brag on their pastor. And on my preaching. And they were always talking about how they had told somebody on the job about the message that I had preached Sunday night. Or Wednesday night. Or they gave a tape to this one and they gave a tape to that one. But then all of a sudden. Situations just unfolded to where all of a sudden they came into the crosshairs. And all of a sudden I had to preach to them. them they knew it and everybody else knew it and the same preaching they would have been quick to have screamed amen about not too long before suddenly they're sitting there quiet and they are fuming and they are brooding And contemplating changing churches. And suddenly I am their enemy. And I'm the same pastor that I was when they were bragging on me. And I'm preaching the same message that I preached when they were giving their glowing reports. But suddenly the preaching has become personal. So when David had to say, Thou art the man, Lord have mercy, can it be that time already? 
when David had to say, Thou art the man, this was the greatest test of David's relationship with God. How he would respond at this moment when he got nailed with the message. Now he was king. He had power. He had authority. There is standing before him a man who is the only one as far as David knows outside of himself. And outside of, of, uh, of uh, Joab. That knows what's going on. He already had one man killed. He could have easily responded with, how dare you accuse me of such a thing. He could have had him killed. He could have eliminated Nathan from his life. How David responded right then was going to define his whole future. How you respond when the preaching becomes personal is what's going to define your whole future. Whether you are able to embrace what you have just heard or whether you will go about to eliminate the threat. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Lord, I've got so much to say that I want to say here today. Amen. But that is the test, ladies and gentlemen. You can be seated. I'm going to tell you something. You can be in church for 20 and 30 years. And hear thousands of messages and Bible lessons. And not that none of it was ever uh, applicable to you because... You know, we line up and we change and we do all this. Uh, much of the preaching is generic. It applies to everybody. We, we adjust, we adapt, we change. Amen. And that's okay. But I'm going to tell you, brethren, there will come a day again if it hasn't already. When circumstances are going to arise in your life. Maybe not even of your own making. But things are just going to snowball. And it's going to put you in a position where you are going to have to take some very personal instruction. And it may not be what you want to hear. It may not be personal instruction. It might be very specific correction. It might be very embarrassing. It might be very abrasive. You might stand there and you feel like your face is glowing. And your ears are red hot because you know that that preacher who you thought was your friend all these years is just taking you apart by the word of God. And everybody around you knows. And they're afraid to look at you. And you're afraid to look at anybody else. It is what you do right then that's going to decide whether all those 20 or 30 years really mattered. these men that have been up here close responding to the preaching last night and this morning I appreciate that I don't want to put them on the spot at all today amen but that's good that's wonderful but what's going to happen when the preaching zeroes in on you what kind of an attitude are you going to have 
What kind of a response? What kind of a disposition are you going to manifest? And if you blow it right then at that moment, you are going to go off track, lose out with God, get out of his will. And all those other sermons that you heard will not avail you one little thing. Be seated. We were having to move a tape cabinet at the church here some time back, and, and uh, it was some of our tapes, and not all of them, but there were, there was probably 1,500 of them in the cabinet. And so while some of the young men were hauling these boxes out of the cabinet so that we could move it, somebody said, boy, there's, whoo, look at all this wisdom and knowledge that's in these boxes. That's what they said. And I said, I probably shouldn't have reacted this way, but I said, yeah. And there are people that heard every one of them that are not in church right now. I'm looking at a group of men here today. You represent many other lives that are not here. Wives, children. Even young men who are not yet married, but you will be if the Lord tarries. Some of you have maybe positions in the church or whatever. You have some influence in your assembly. So that though there is about a hundred men here, God only knows how many other hundreds are represented by you that are present. And by that I'm saying the decisions you make. going to affect the lives of other people. It is possible for children to make it and be saved, amen, if dad doesn't live for God. But it certainly makes their hill a lot steeper to climb. It's not impossible for them to serve God, but it is improbable. And though you might be sitting here today and the efforts you've made to come to this man's retreat reveals that you placed some value on this event. You took time out of your schedule, not that others perhaps didn't want to, but, but you were able to and you did and you spent the money and you're here when you could be home doing other things. And that's great, that's commendable, that lets me know this is probably the cream of the crop here today. 
Amen. But oh, let me tell you something. What are you going to do when the preaching gets personal? Are you going to bow up? Are you going to go home fuming? Are you going to start talking against your pastor? Are you going to influence your wife and your children? Amen. Because of the fact that you're hurt or you're embarrassed or you're ashamed and cause them to go to hell also. You have a responsibility today. You better make it up in your mind right now. You better have a contingency plan. What am I going to do when the preaching gets personal? You can be seated. I'm going to have to hurry to close. I preached a message last year, I think, at Brother Meads at the youth conference there on, on your greatest test. The greatest test of your life and mine is submission. It goes from the cradle to the grave. It changes phases. And applications, but it remains the same. A child, a small child, has to learn to submit to their parents in its earliest days. And then they enter school and they have to learn to submit to people who are not their parents. And then they graduate from high school and they enter the workforce and they have to learn to submit to people who, wouldn't, who don't care a flip about them. Praise the Lord. And, and sometimes young men, they chafe at that. And so they decide, I'm sick and tired of, of doing what dad wants me to do. So I'm going to run off and join the Marines. Right. <laughs> or a young lady decides she's tired of doing all the chores around the house. And, and being told to wash the dishes and clean off the table and vacuum the rug. So she's going to run off and get married. And now she is going to have to take orders from an immature version of her own dad. Who's wanting to prove he's macho man. The truth of the matter is you never get out from under it. God is going to keep pressure on us all through life. If you try to get away from it one way, he's going to get you another. Right. Amen. But you're going to have to learn to submit sooner or later. And the same applies in church. Now hear me today because this is going to have to be my final point. Though I have other things I could say here today. Be seated. Praise the Lord. But... But your relationship with the man of God changes as time goes on. If you're a young person in the church, amen, you have to submit to the man of God in terms of what you wear, where you go, who you run with. That's kind of where the main focus is. Not that that ever really goes away, but that's where the main focus is. And there's a lot of young people that at that point... Amen. Things are fractured and, and they end up leaving the church because they can't submit to that. They don't want nobody telling them what to wear and who they can run with and where they can go. And if I can't go to the ball games and I'll just backslide. 
then I'll go. You can do that. But I'm going to tell you, God's going to get you some other way. If he cares anything about you, you are in for a rough road. Because he's going to keep some pressure on you. Just like this young man you were talking about. He may have jumped ship. He may have gotten out from where there was pressure put on. But his life has been nothing but misery ever since. If you don't submit to it one way, God will get you another. Praise the Lord. Amen. So he thinks he's been out there doing his own thing all these years. But instead he's been beating his head against the wall. Amen. If thou doest well, shalt thou not also be accepted. But if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. It got a whole lot more complicated when he refused. And then it comes time to marry. And you have to submit to the preacher again. When he says, you know, that young lady you're dating, she's no good. But she's the girl of my dreams. But she's a knockout. But she's built like a racehorse. Can't we find a way in here to make this work? Amen. Yeah, but I just, she's not good for you. And sometimes you've got some bona fide reasons for saying that. You can point to the fact that her life has been inconsistent. You can point to the fact that she has been marginal in her convictions. You can point to the fact that she's not a worshiper, that she doesn't know how to pray. That she's had rebellion in her. You can point to some things. What would you do if there was nothing like that? If the man of God just said, I just don't feel good about it. Even if she did grow up in church. Even if both their parents are there. Even if they're wonderful people. Even if she's a fine girl. But the pastor says, I just don't feel good about it. And if you manage to get past that one and you end up marrying and everything's wonderful and fine and, and uh, everybody's happy, then kids come along. Then you enter into a whole new phase. Because then the pastor's having to preach about how to take care of your child. I mean, just try to preach something like you know, when to take the child out when it's being too much of a distraction. And people can get their dander up. People that are every inch apostolic. People been in church all their life all of a sudden start bowing up. Then when that child begins to grow and you have to start dealing with their kids now. And when you want to say, but what about so-and-so's kids? 
You didn't make the same decision with them that you're making with mine. All of these different things start entering into it. And until then, everything was fine. Your pastor was the greatest man of God. You just cry when you talk about it. I don't know if this is needful here today. I'm just preaching what I feel in my heart. And it's like that. It's always changing. It goes from one phase to another. It might be over a job. Who, what right does he have to tell me where I can work and where I can't work? Amen. But when your job starts to infringe on church and your spirituality starts to go down and the preacher has to say, you know what? I just, I, I hate your work in there. I wish that, that you, would, you would make another decision. You know, just any other thing. While somebody else was needing that, you were saying, that's right, that's right, preach it, pastor, that's right. But now all of a sudden it's you. Brother Mead and I were talking about it yesterday at the airport in Atlanta before we flew down here. Amen. And it's, and it's, like, it's like some people are in church, brother, for 30 and 40 years and they never bobble one time. But then all of a sudden something happens and it brings them into the limelight. And the spotlight is on them. And they fail the task. And lose out with God and sometimes take others with them. If I asked you do you love truth today you would all say amen. If I asked you, do you believe Acts 2.38, you would say amen. If I said, do you believe in holiness, you'd all come to your feet. If I preached against this or that, you'd all rally behind me. What I want to know is, what are you going to do the day that the preaching becomes personal? You can remain standing because I've got to quit. I wanted to read to you Hebrews 12. Because I wanted to show you a few things there and I don't have time. Amen. But I'll just simply, by way of condensing it, just mention that Hebrews 12 begins with those wonderful words. Wherefore, seeing we are also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But it goes on to say, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. You see, it just moved smoothly from that other into that. You think you've got such a big trial because all of a sudden you're receiving the chastening of the Lord. He said, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. 
If you endure chastening, God dealeth with, with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. Everybody say all. Then are you bastards and not sons. You reveal at that moment whether you are really a child of God. If you can endure chastening. And it goes on to speak about the fact that we received it from our fathers. Of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Unto them which are exercised thereby. And then it says this. Wherefore lift up the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. You know, I always thought about that scripture saying you ought to lift up somebody else's hands that hang. It's saying lift up your own hands. It's saying straighten up. Quit sulking. Quit pouting. Stand up straight. Quit dragging your feet. Lift up the hands that hang down in the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. Just straighten up. And then it says, it's all connected here. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. I say to you in the Holy Ghost, brother, doesn't matter how long you've been in church, how loud you holler now, how much you shout. I want to say that's commendable. But the real test is going to come when the preaching becomes personal. Lift your hands and let's worship the Lord today.